is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So welcome to the latest edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. This week, episode 13, we will get to what we're talking about in due course. And it's good to have your company. And please do get in touch and join in. If you've got an album or a set of albums, preferably, that you think you want us to listen to and review and pass a critical eye and ear over, we'd love to do that. Ideally on a theme, all of our shows are themed. So talking of themes, last week we uh, we were doing homework with one B. Tatler Esquire, lead guitarist and founder of Diamond Head, weren't we? How did we enjoy that? Well, we enjoyed it a lot. We, we, we First of all, we very much enjoyed Brian's company earlier and um, yeah, it was lovely to assess the uh, the albums that he gave us to research because, well, it's never a chore and these three certainly weren't a chore. Physical Graffiti by Led Zepp, Sad Wings of Destiny by Judas Priest and Let Them Be Rocked by ACDC. You struggle to find three bigger, bigger bands, bigger beasts to go on the turntable for a week and uh, yeah, we had fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Physical Graffiti, which was, I think, uh, Brian's favourite, favourite yeah. album, didn't fare quite so well because despite some standout tracks uh, yeah, for all of us on there. We just felt it was a bit long and a bit padded. And Sam, Sad Wings of Destiny was a lovely discovery for me, just hearing Judas Priest and those early signs of their of their sound and their songwriting before they they really broke out. So I thought it was a, a, a lovely trio of albums to, to listen to. Yeah, good fun, good fun. Uh, as Steve says, it certainly wasn't a chore. But we move on. We move on to episode thirteen. Um, oh, and by the way, if you if you haven't checked out the um, the special edition of Enter Sad Men, which is the conversation we had with Brian Tatler, that's now available. So go and check that out. But moving on to this week, episode thirteen, and um, uh, who brought the lipstick? Who brought the mascara? And who brought the foundation? Because we are going full makeup, aren't we? This week we have touched on um, we have touched on li- little bit of eyeliner and makeup before haven't we we've had rat appear and vixen have appeared but we're going full on this time aren't we we're going i was gonna say full facial but perhaps perhaps i should rephrase that (laughs) yeah let's um yeah let's just wind that back a bit and just uh yeah let's not let's not talk about how many facials we're going for i think what we agreed though was that um in order to qualify for this episode it had to be full mask makeup didn't it? You didn't quite hit the brief, Steve, but we let you get away with it. And to be honest, I was quite happy to for you to miss the brief because it's it's been an absolute joy this week listening to some of this stuff. So, um, the three albums that we chose were Richard came up with Kiss's debut album from 1974, Kiss. I came up. With and I'm not entirely sure if Richard's ever going to talk to me again. Uh, I came up with Merciful Fates, Melissa, and uh, and Steve. Um, Steve went back to, well, the comfort blanket that is Hanoi Rocks, didn't you? And uh, I'm surprised. It, you, you kind of dillied and dallied with Faster Pussycat for a while, and then you went, no, I'm going to go for Hanoi Rocks. And we're all, Richard and I are going, yeah, we knew you were going to go for Hanoi Rocks. For Christ's sake, how long did it take you to get there? Rich was adamant last week, eyeliner's not sufficient. We need some proper slap. And Mike Munro, bless him, when he wanted to put it on, he could put it on. So, um, yeah, happy with that. Right, so let's have a little listen to what lies ahead in episode 13 of Enter Sam.
Right, so let's kick off episode 13 with the godfathers of uh, face paint, Kiss. And Rich, it's all yours. Opening album sleeve notes. Uh, I was a bit of a latecomer to Kiss, really. I mean, I listened to them bits and pieces, but it was only when uh, uh, Mark threw everything of their back catalogue at me that I really, really um, uh, got into them. And I thought, well, given we're talking about face paint um, and makeup, we've got to include this band and what better album uh, to use than uh, their debut. So I mean, they were formed, what, 1973? And a year or so later, they went into the studio for, well, a, a, a couple of weeks, it would appear, to uh, to, to record uh, their, their self-titled debut. They recorded this uh, at uh, Bell Sound Studios in, uh, you know, not surprisingly, New York City. So, um, yeah, guys, um, you must know this album as well as I. Yep. Um, yes, I mean, I, certainly I, I do. I, I kind of got into Kiss. Uh, oh, God. Uh, somebody played me a live two, which is, I think, possibly the most overdubbed album in the history of overdubbed albums, but does give you a real kind of... Um, glimpse if you've never encountered the band before a real glimpse of the kind of hysteria that there was around it um when they when they started out and uh yeah, as you say richard you know uh, there are some absolutely band defining sound defining tracks on this album um there are one or two turkeys on it as well let's be honest but actually as, as an overall i mean i can't I, I didn't count them up but the five tracks off the 10 album the 10 10 tracks that are on this album five of them are still in their live show today yeah 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 well i i, I did actually tot it up bearing in mind that we saw them at the o2 last year and checked the set list and there was four tracks from this album were played live that's more than from any of their album and i think they've done one or two albums boys haven't they so and they and they managed four from that which says a an awful lot about how good the album is and b their affection for it and see, of course, um, what their fans want to hear. And their fans have been listening to this band churn out any amount of music over the centuries and an awful lot of stuff that this is the template for. So a hell of a lot of songs that sound like the stuff that's on this album, but they stick very loyally to, um, to you know, th- th- their, their first piece of work. And I'm glad you mentioned, because I was, I don't want to fall out with you boys, but there are some misses on this album, unquestionably, but then you've, you've got to expect it from, you know, it's a first album, it's early 70s, it's of a time, and I think it's important that we, you know, I mean, I know you boys will, obviously, but, you know, we'll have to remember. There's a feeling, there's, a, there's an emotion about Kiss, isn't there? And to my mind, they are a live band over a vinyl band all day long, and if you've not seen them and if you've only heard them on album form, then... You just don't get Kiss. You have to see them. Absolutely true. And you know, they're, they're <laughs> having having done. I mean, I'm not sure how many final tours Kiss have now done. Uh, I think it's about 46. Having done one last year, they're coming back next year for another one. So yeah, Steve's right. If you haven't seen this band live, then you have missed out big time. Because whether you like the music or not, whether you like Kiss or not, whether you like their albums or not, if you want to see a show, go and watch Kiss perform because it is jaw-dropping and hilarious in equal measure, isn't it? Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I mean, I, I, 
so my prediction is that 2023 would be their 50th anniversary. There is no way if they're still alive and uh, can walk across a stage in six-inch boots that they will not be doing a 50th anniversary tour. But but what's what's also a surprise, isn't it? Is 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 the fact that they did form in in 1973. That's that long ago that this album was released in 1974. It's incredible. I mean, I think Gene Simmons was about I don't know was it um, was, was he 25 and Paul Stanley was a, a bit younger. I mean, so the, you know, so the, you know, early mid twenties when they when they made this album, but it it was just so long ago. We are dealing for the first time on on this show. You know, thirteen episodes in, I think it's fair to say this is the first episode where we're dealing with a global brand in terms of commercially a, a global brand. There are we've dealt with huge bands. We've we've listened to huge bands that have a huge following, huge profile. You know, Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Van Halen, you know, all of them. We've dealt with all of them. But this, this is a business machine, isn't it? And and they started yeah. out that way. They obviously, I don't quite know when it became clear to them that, that, that they would they would build a brand. I mean, did you know, do you know that, Mark? Was that, was that from, from the very beginning? Or they realised that actually they had, after a while, that they had they had something? Well, they had a gimmick, didn't they? They had, they had the, I mean, the makeup was the gimmick. And then they kind of leveraged that because, you know, they were, they were brilliantly clever about it. You know, you never saw that band out of makeup, never saw the band members out of makeup. So they, they, I think the, I think they, they sort of came to it slowly and then the hysteria started and suddenly there were figurines in shops and yeah. And Gene Simmons is a smart man. You know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley together commercially are very, very savvy. And they knew then, I think, that they had something, you know, commercially, um, you know, very, very special. And and uh, and the, the makeup was the selling point. The makeup was was did it because otherwise they're just a band making great music, aren't they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. More than more than did it. It was it. The makeup was it because I mean, you've heard, how many how many how many music critics have you heard say of Kiss? Are they just a two chord freak show? You know, because because musically they are just they are so. Same is is unfair, but but that they are what they are. I mean, they're, they're straight down the line. Rock, you know what you're getting. It's not complicated. Um, and had they not had makeup, they wouldn't have survived past seventy five. Is my personal view. Had they not produced alive the album alive and, and given the view, and, and that was only going to happen because of the live shows. They were a live band. They had the makeup. They had the look. They had the feel. And had they had none of that, their first three albums, which didn't sell well. Um, retrospectively, they sold well. They didn't sell well at the time. Um, Alive made them, and um, and it was all based on the look. And and as you say, I guess Simmons perhaps more than Stanley because Simmons always comes across as the ultimate savvy businessman. They knew, they knew from the off. You know, this 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 was an industry changer, and um, and they've milked it ever since. Apart, <laughs> they did go through a non-makeup stage, didn't they? When it um, when they were shit, I think basically. <laughs> Well, you say that. You say that. Um, uh, I really liked Lick It Up, which yeah. was the first first album out of makeup. Absolutely loved it. Um, still love it today. You've got to remember that their biggest selling album of all time was the was was Crazy Nights. Mm. Um, you know, out of makeup. So 
the, 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 selling the music didn't require the makeup. Selling the band did. Kicking off uh, Kiss's first album is the wonderful Strutter, which for me does just say everything about what this band's about. I mean, it, it's it's catchy, it's simple, but just gets in your head. Great lyrics, great groove to it, and I mean, it just just is the essence of what this band were, were have always been about, boys. This, along with Deuce, which is also on this album, um, is probably my favourite Kiss track of all. Literally, it, it just comes flying out the speakers and just kind of strut, struts around in front of you. It's just brilliant. I love it. Absolutely love it. And was it, were any bands doing this sort of stuff in 73, 74, this kind of kitsch, kitsch, cabaret, rock and roll turned rock? I mean, I can't think of many. This is going to sound ridiculous, but there is a sort of a dotted line, isn't there, between Kiss's sound and what bands like The Sweet were doing over here. Yeah, yeah. It, I think you know, this, is, this is bubble gum, but it's hard bubble gum, in a way that Sweet were doing very kind of pop music-y bubble gum. It was a, a watered-down, kind of funked-up version of this. But no, they weren't, I don't think there was another band like them around at the moment, which is interesting because it wasn't enough to make them. In fact, Casablanca were decidedly lukewarm about the band, weren't they? Yeah. When this came out. Yeah, and still were three albums later, apparently. So I'd heard that... Their influences you know, include the new Dolls, Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, even things like the Zombies. And um, I can hear quite a lot of that, in, in the, particularly in this song. It's Fraley's guitar, isn't it, that kind of carries it, really? It's that lead. That That's the real sort of hard rock element of it, isn't it? Yeah. And so we, we, we come out of Strutter uh, about a good-looking woman. Uh, breaking your heart to anal sex. Mm. Every album should have one on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm setting the standards. Uh, nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah, and this was and this was the first single. Try explaining that at the press conference. It, yeah, it's tough to follow Strutter with anything. Yeah, I, I, the, the first word that came to me was unremarkable. I don't, don't know if the Beach Boys ever made a song about anal sex. <laughs> Good vibrations, no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it's all right, isn't it? It's um, it's a second track on their first album, um, uh, is what yeah. it is, isn't it? Just yeah, it's settles right. into it's right. you know. I mean, at this point, if if you're if it's 1974 and you've picked this album off the the shelf, you're probably th- you're probably feeling a bit disappointed here. Yeah, I don't, it's, we know what comes next. <laughs> well, yes, but again, I mean, massive sixties influences in this song. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Beatles' influence extends beyond just musical as well, because the, the album cover, isn't it, is based on a Beatles album cover? Yeah, isn't it with the Beatles? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can hear a lot of influences in this, but again, charging in on his white horse, Ace Frehley, with a lovely little kind of squeaky guitar solo that just kind of goes, yeah, it's not actually a pop song. So on to Firehouse and track three, which is a, a live staple of, of theirs. And 
one of those tracks that just shows how much heavier they are now. Because listen to this again on this album, it just feels, again, very nice and light and poppy. I mean, live, this is this seriously kicks. It's it's hard, isn't it, to find new things to say about Kiss's music. I think what struck me listening to this album more than anything else is the range that they had. You know, at this point, they were they hadn't cemented their sound here particularly. I mean, they they were a long way down the road, I think, but but they were still kind of noodling around the edges, weren't they? There's some there's some really interesting curios, mainly in the missteps, I would say. Uh, on the album, which make it a really interesting listen. And I think it's really interesting listening to how their sound evolved over the years to bring them to where they got to in 1983 when they decided that actually the best turned out to be the worst thing they could do was to take the makeup off and compete with you know, everything else that was going on in 1983. Well, I don't know. I, 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 really, I really enjoyed listening to this end-to-end again. Uh, this last week it's all you know it really did all start here all the basics were there they've just turned it up a bit how many albums do we listen to where where you can't hear the bass in it and do you think there's any coincidence in the fact that gene simmons is the bassist in this band that actually you hear quite a lot of that bass i just can't i just can't listen to firehouse with just without picturing it live it's just one of those tracks that just takes you to a place doesn't it yeah it's just a live staple. But this is this is it. They're not. There are so many bands that they go right. Well, we're this kind of band, and we're going to do this kind of music, and all of our songs are going to be that. Kiss are a little more inventive, a little more experimental, a little bit more Led Zeppelin in that in that sense. That they, yeah, it would have been very easy, wouldn't it? First album, they've got Strutter in the can. They go right. Well, we're going to do Strutter times ten because that's ultimately the way that, you know, we're going to make it. But no, they come out and they go, no, we're, we're going to do nothing to lose. And, you know, we're going to put an instrumental track on there and, you know, just do different stuff. I think this is a really interesting record. Apart from, apart from being great, it's also really interesting. So we, we talk about the importance of how you finish one side and how you begin the next. Interesting choices in both cases here, really. Yeah, again, it's it's nice poppy rock, but yeah, quite a a drop down to finish side one in my view. I don't know what what you two think. It's um, it's inoffensive. But if you if you kiss, I think the last thing you want to be described as is inoffensive. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It's a relic of their Wicked Lester days, isn't it? It's um, yeah. and it kind of comes across as something that should really have been left there probably yeah for, for for me this is this is the the low point on the album yeah for for me too it it's it's fine it's just lift music really until the end and then it yeah. then for the for the last sort of half a minute it, it it sort of kicks off and i'm sitting there thinking well why didn't you start the song yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was actually yeah. a record over and start side two with Kissing Time, which yeah. is for me, it was that was that that their first attempt and an absolute crowd bouncy sing along. They've kissed it up, haven't they? Because it's not their song. Yeah. yeah, and all they've done is they've they've kind of they've got a song that was written by two two other guys 
I think I think didn't uh, Cal Mann wrote for Chubby Checker, and you can hear that in this. You know, if you're familiar with Chubby Checker's stuff, this is this is very 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 similar. But then Simmons and Stanley have just gone and gone. Okay, so we'll give it the kiss treatment and make it a kiss song, and it absolutely is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and to think it only happened by accident. Because it was it was a it was a kind of late addition to the album, wasn't it? They wanted a second single. Not that not that they'd have had a shortage of other songs as single contenders, but you know, maybe at the time, this seemed right. No, it's, it's a great song, great song. I mean, the whole Kiss story makes you wonder what the hell record label executives are doing, interfering in creative processes, because Casablanca also wanted them to drop the makeup, didn't they? Can you imagine if they had? And we're now into my second. Favourites, or my equal favourite tra- uh, Kiss track. Another one that just takes me to a live show. Simple as that. It's 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 just relentlessly uncomplicated. It's just I'm I'm moving my feet as I'm listening to it now, as I would do then, and you know my mouth would be open. I'd have a gormless smile on my face, and that's just what Juice does to you. It barely needs explanation. Its simplicity is everything. It's just. It's just damn good rock. The riff is just superb on this, the, the, the underpinning the uh, the verses. We're talking about rock music here, aren't we? And, and uh, we're talking about ACDC. You know, sometimes simplic- simplicity is just brilliant. And this is close to a perfect uh, rock song. It's sure, nothing is wasted, right length, great little solos, fantastic riffs, Good sing-along vocals, and again, driven by that man's bass. Try and stand still to this, and not move, a, not move a, a joint, a finger. You know, it gets up and it just doesn't quit, does it? Fantastic song. So we're now on to um, the, the love theme, which we did. We did have a little discussion, didn't we, about whether we should score this? And I think we should because I think it's a lovely little instrumental piece of music. Yeah, me too. <laughs> this this takes me to New York City. This in 1973 on a sunny day and, a you know, and I can just smoke rising from the from the sidewalk and just people strolling around. It just I think it's lovely. I think it's really, really it's a really interesting interlude. So on to the next to last track, 100,000 years. Massive start with the um, with, <laughs> with the bass. And again, when they play this live, it really does explode, doesn't it? Um, but I, I think this is. I, I love the start to this. I love how it comes in. I mean, really, really good uh, arrangement on this track. Well, it's um, it's my favourite track off the album. I just, I just love. The, I just think the composition of this thing is spectacular, and I love that groove that runs through it. Again, you know, how many more times do we need to mention the Simmons four string? It's it's of a time. I'm getting a kind of disco beat, and, a, and a, there's a funkiness about it. It's um, yeah, I can, I can. You know, going back to the you know mid seventies or whatever, I can see Huggy Bear and his bros getting down to this. It's all um, it just washes over you. It's brilliant, brilliant, really hooky. You've got nice little breaks in it within a three minute song. I mean, so yeah, it's yeah. Lots of, they've managed to cram a lot into this. And another and another really tidy ace freely guitar solo. I mean, as in the pantheon of lead guitarists, where where would he rank? Oh. Quite highly, though I think underappreciated and under acknowledged for, for for the role that he played in this particular band. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the problem is that your star is always going to shine less brightly than the two people standing, you know, alongside you. Yeah. And he got the chance to show off later in life, didn't he? Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the, the thing about Kiss is everyone knows their job, don't they? You know, Ace Frehley's not there to, prof- you know, provide guitar histrionics. You know, he's not an Ingve Ing- in that regard, is he? He's there to do a job, and he does it really, really, really well. So now the final track, Black Diamond. Great way to finish an album. That bass is quite high up in the mix, isn't it? But that is Kiss's sound, isn't it? It's built around Gene Simmons' bass. All of it is. All the best stuff they've done has that bass up, up loud. So that kind of brings us nicely, doesn't it, to, to highs and lows. So for me, Let Me Know is the low. I think that's just a bit of a nothing track, really. And it will come as no surprise to find that I can't put a piece of paper between Strutter and Juice. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can't put a piece of paper between Let Me Know and Nothing to Lose for the wrong reasons. So probably Let Me Know. Um, and yeah, I love a hundred thousand years. I just think it's it's a masterstroke, piece of magic. Yeah, for me, let me know, and is, is the 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 weaker point. And for me, Deuce just pips Strutter. That's Kiss, circa nineteen seventy four, with their debut album, the self titled Kiss. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. So now we move on to our second choice for this evening, uh, which is Marks um, and uh, an album by the Danish heavy metal band Merciful Fate. Mark chose these. I thought, oh my goodness, perhaps I should have chosen these instead of Ingve. Um, in our Europe uh, uh, Broxit uh, episode uh, just a, a few back. Um, Mark, over to you. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, so this is Danish, well, I was going to call them thrash metal, but they're not really thrash metal. I was going to call them speed metal, but they're not really speed metal. I was going to call them death metal, but they're not really death metal. They are definitely black metal because much of this album in particular is about the occult and uh, Old St. Nick with the cast iron collar stud. So this album, well, Merciful Fate and this album have three very significant facts attached to them, okay? So the first fact attached to them is that this was the debut release of Roadrunner Records, which was a very, very influential British record label um, back in the early 80s, broke loads of loads of bands. And we'll come on and talk about Roadrunner a bit later because they were important. Um, and, you know, Merciful Fate were a fairly sort of high-ticket signing for them, actually, as, a, as a, uh, a creative act. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is that they appeared, they're one of the bands that appeared on the um, PMRC's original Filthy 15 list. So the 15 tracks that the uh, Hollywood Wives, as Blackie Lawless, um, Washington Wives, sorry, as Blackie Lawless referred to them, uh, this is one of 15 tracks that appeared on their hit list um, into the coven because of its um, its devil-worshipping theme. When I was thinking, as I was listening this week, I was thinking, fuck me, really, they chose into the coven because for me there were some other candidates in there that would have probably been a bit more 
you know, a bit more on the nose. So, yes, so they, they kind of made history because they're one of the original 15. And the third fact is their one and only UK performance on this tour was at St Albans City Hall supporting Man of War, and I was there. And they left the tour after that very first show because Man of War fucked around with their soundboard and gave them a really shitty sound and treated them really badly. They were supposed to have 45 minutes uh, as a supporting set. It was cut to 25 by Man of War. Yeah, so their one and only show in England I happened to be at. So, yeah, there are your three facts. Now, I haven't listened to this in a very long time, okay? And I was quite, I, I was full of trepidation, if I'm being absolutely honest, because, uh, as you've probably discovered, particularly if you listen to episode six, the Court in a Mosh episode, I don't deal well with out-of-control music. And, and my memory of this is that it was a bit kind of fast and furious and all over the shop and a bit messy and sloppy but actually it wasn't i've been really pleasantly surprised however i'm not sure that goes for all three of us so there you go that's merciful fate 1983 melissa it features uh, a track that at 11 minutes long probably six or seven minutes longer than it needs to be but nevertheless interesting i had a great time rediscovering this let's get to the let's get to the juicy bits later steve what did you think first of all yeah thoroughly i mean i i, I always liked merciful fate anyway and um the, the one that you came up came up with three really fascinating facts the fourth one that really surprised me is my fourth one is that Rolling Stone ranked Melissa as 17th on their list of the 100 greatest metal albums of all time in 2017, which just seems preposterous because it's not nowhere near it. But it's a brilliant piece of work. I absolutely adore it. And you can talk, as you say, you can talk about genres all you like, speed and death and black. The, the, the only reason it's black is because of the it's because of the lyrical context. This is power metal. Nothing more, nothing less. It's early 80s power rock at its best. Like it's just superbly written as you say once you overcome that initial thought you play it a few times overcome that initial thought that it is messy and it ain't it's really well structured and it's brilliantly written and i think it's fantastic and it's interesting what you said about the um the thought police because uh, into the coven of course was going to be the name of the of the um of the album and um they changed that and i presume that was the reason and my footnote on the man of war thing is i think they were shit scared of them yeah yeah absolutely right that's it that's the only reason to do what they did. So here we go. Let's strap <laughs> yourself in, Steve. Strap yourself in. We're on the rollercoaster. It's interesting, isn't it? The reaction they've got. This album, you know, very dark themes. You know, you know, witches and Satan and the odd pharaoh thrown in for good measure. Not quite sure where that link is, but never mind. But actually, I, I think. I mean, they were they were actually. Sorry, trying, they were can, we just, can we just stop there? Can 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 a Dio fan stop trying to justify the nonsense that's being spouted? I have never said that the little wizard doesn't speak nonsense. Anyway, where I was, I yeah, the old pharaoh thrown in. I was about to until I was so rudely interrupted. I was about to pay him a compliment, but you, you can tell you can tell the boys' defences are up. So yeah, I think they were actually trying to tell a story. You know uh, uh, about um, Melissa the witch. So I don't think I, I. I mean, maybe I've got this wrong, but from reading the lyrics and 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 listening to them, I don't think they were trying to glorify it. 
in any way. I think they were misjudged in terms of the story they're trying to tell. And I think in terms of the songs and the structures and what they were trying to do, actually, no, I don't, I don't think it was messy. I think there's a lot of really good composition in here. I think the um, musicianship is is fantastic, is fantastic in parts. I think they were, they're obviously very carefully crafted songs. But I would define this album, not necessarily all of them by Merciful Fate, but, but this album as screech metal, because I think he absolutely fucking ruins it. We'll go through some of the details of each song, but every time I started to uh, like a bit of the song, I'd hear another falsetto squeal which kind of reset me. <laughs> and I say, I've listened to so much of this um, so, so, so many times, um, as I do with all of these albums, trying to get, trying to get into, into them and understand them. But I, I, did, I did find it, I did find it uh, hard um, with, uh, with, with the, the King Diamond's vocals, I must say. I absolutely get that. I mean, if there's ever a voice that splits opinions, splits atoms, it's the Kings, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, you either oh, love or hate. I don't know, probably too strong. Easy enough to hate, but I, th- I think you can like it as well. But yeah, th- this album and every all Merciful Fates work is defined by the vocals of King Diamond because um, it's a unique thing. Um, and if you don't like it, it's not going to make the listen hugely enjoyable one, is it? No, no, it's not. And, and I get that as well. And, and I struggle with the falsetto stuff. Um, and there are points, many points actually in the album where you think, just come on, no, come on, just, just wind it back a bit. You know, it doesn't have to be every two minutes, but I think, I think what I do or what I've done over the last week is I've, it's a bit like, as I do, when you live next to, you know, near to an airport, eventually you just stop hearing the planes. And I, and I think. And I think that's what's happened to me. <laughs> I just don't hear. I've kind of tuned it out. I listen to the music. The music is fantastic on this. And I would say 50% of the vocals are fantastic on this. But I absolutely get what you're, you know, I, I do completely and absolutely get what you're saying. Um, it's really hard to, to listen to in places. There is a time and a place. <laughs> but, Mark, uh, you would not get used to the planes ever if you're on the flight path <laughs> in the Heathrow. <laughs> um, that's my point. No, I'm, I, I, I get it. I do get it. Yeah, this is never going to be anywhere near the top of the Hall of Fame, is it? It's a, it's a bit of fun. Yeah, I think they took themselves quite seriously, actually. But it's a bit of fun that... It's quite hard to listen to in places. But I think there is a bit of, for me, there is a bit, because I don't find it quite as intrusive probably as you do, you know, I don't find it quite as sort of ear-splitting and, and nerve-shredding. I just t- don't hear it in the same way anymore. I've just kind of tuned it out. So it starts off with a, a track called Evil. I mean, okay, right. Great riff, great riff, great start. Really good solo in this, oh, my goodness, uh, this track. And, and Evil actually seem, it, it's held up by a lot of people, isn't it, as, as the the best track, or their favourite track on on this album. The Galloping Star, and there's some fantastic, really good riffs on this. And he can sing. That's that's the thing. 
a lot of what's going on, I think, is actually unnecessary in vocally. He could just he could sing this and it would be just as good. That's a really interesting viewpoint because I was just about to say he can't sing actually, and um, it, it doesn't actually bother me enormously because I don't think he's a great vocalist in any well, kind of way, really. No, when I, when I say he can sing, I mean I mean he can sing better than I can. <laughs> this is all about the music, isn't it? This band is all about the music, really. It's not about the lyrics. I mean, well, it is, but it's not about the vocals. The vocals happen in spite of the music in all sorts of ways. But it's not a hard listen when he's not screeching. No, and you say it's all about the music. This is another band, I mean, like Kiss, but kind of, which is all about the live show as well. And you've seen them, you know. I mean, I mean, presumably when you saw The King back in um, 80, whenever it was, I mean, the, the, the full black and white makeup, the, the yeah. skull microphone and, and the full cabaret works. That's what you go and get. That's what that's what you that's what you're buying into when you go and see a merciful fate gig, isn't it? And, and yeah, yeah, March '84. That was what it was. It was theatre, but there are bits here where where it's just it's straight ahead rock and roll. It's not yeah. even power metal. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear, I don't. I feel the lyric the the voice has spoilt it. If I'm honest, I, th- I think underpinning this in terms of there's some really, really good work in terms of you know, guitar, bass, drums. I mean, it's pretty well produced. And uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, it's I, I apologise. It, it, it's such a blocker for me. I mean, yeah, it's now into this middle midsection with a fantastic galloping bass and the gu- uh, guitars on the top. There's some fantastic bits on this album. And I think, I don't know, can he sing? Technically, he can hit notes of an amazing range, jumping several octaves between two notes, like I've heard, heard very few other singers be able to do. So, yeah. But is it pleasant? To me, no. Yeah. Hank Credits of Hank Sherman, the, the guitarist who wrote all this stuff. I mean, brilliant songwriter. I mean, you know, so much quality power. Uh, in the riffs and the arrangement and everything is, you know, brilliant yeah, stuff. But, but Steve, you've you've got to question, haven't you? His ear, you know, Sherman's ear for for anything when he comes out with a quote that says Diamond's performance was very surprising because he sounded very close to Robert Plant's original <laughs> vocals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he stood next to him too long, I think. <laughs> I mean, although, yeah, if Percy had taken the kind of the the falsetto approach to Stay Away to Heaven, who knows what would have happened? It could have been a very different story. Yeah. I lo- this is this is my favourite song on the album, Curse of the Pharaohs. Yep. Mine too. Um, yeah, loads of stuff going on in it. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I, 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 I need to have a think about this, but I don't know whether it's because, one, it's got some fantastic riffs and, and changes all the way through it or two because he squeals less on this than every other track on the album could be could be coincidence don't know uh, but but there's something else going on here because actually in in the normal run of the song there is no screeching there's no falsetto it's all overlaid it's all overlaid they've they've overlaid screeching onto perfectly normal singing which is, I don't get. Have they gone, do you know what? That's our unique selling point. 
it's King's screeching that actually defines the band's sound. Therefore, we're going to introduce it even when we don't need to. From the reviews and stuff that I've read, people believe that it, it, was, it was meant to portray the evil. If Satan sounds like that and I'm in hell, then I I'm, I'm really am in for eternal damnation because I won't be able to stop giggling. Yeah. Yeah. That is the truth, isn't it? You you can't. I mean, it's you can't take this Alice Cooper nonsense seriously, can you? I mean, I know he apparently, and who am I to say otherwise, is a Satanist of some crazy mm-hmm. cult of some sort. No, genuinely is. He believes okay. in all this. Yeah, um, it's a church, but it's very Satanist. So you know, it's it's. It's what he believes in. I mean, it's. It, I don't think you need to keep singing about it, but um, yeah. Go into the coven, which starts off like a medieval folk song. Yeah, and therefore should have been the opening track because it was to me it was their fast as a shark moment, or their fight fire with fire moment. But now you're three tracks in, you just think, well, fuck it. They can go as medieval as they want. We know what's coming, so. And my goodness, he uh, goes for it in here, doesn't he? I mean, the lyrics are absolute fucking nonsense. I mean, how the PMRC looked at this and went, that's dangerous, is beyond me. How like a wolf and a witch will open the door, follow me and meet our high priestess, come, come into my coven and become Lucifer's child, okay? Undress until you're naked and put on this white coat. Why not just put on the white coat? It makes no sense. I mean, <laughs> I, I accept, I accept that this is not literature, but none of it, none of it makes sense. No, no. But I think it's more, more the point of why on earth did this kind of hit the radar of the PMRC? Why were they bothered? Why did they not just look at it and go, "The man's an idiot"? Not that he is, but yeah, that would have been <laughs> that would have been the natural reaction, right. wouldn't it? Curse upon you! He's a Satanist. We we know that. But I think we said this about uh, some earlier albums, didn't we? When we've reviewed them, that that um, that the PMRC were probably one of the biggest helpers and promoters of this kind of music. I mean, it was like you know, whenever there was anything with a parental advisory, explicit lyrics on it, you go, "I'll have that then." So I think my my view of this album is if you can put if you if, and Richard I understand you can't but if you can put to one side the the slightly hysterical vocals there's a huge amount to like about this album. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. And it's not going to be at the bottom of the Hall of Fame either for all its ridiculousness. So I'm now not going to talk for 40 seconds. This is at the sound of the demon bell. This is this is the best forty seconds you will hear in heavy metal anywhere, done by anyone. So it's all yours. Again, fantastic intro, and then shattered by a massive fucking Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> in all of the work times I've listened to that this week, I didn't even know that was a word. <laughs> First time I listened to this album, I was on my own machine. I fell off when he sang. Yeah, it's just it's the continuation of a theme. I just it's um again you, what you got to say to yourself is you know eighty percent of this album is music and twenty percent of it's singing probably and it's um the music sells it to me. What are we into a black funeral? Again, I'm 
great riffs throughout this album. And Black Funeral, I, I, I quite like. Bitch is short. <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably advisable. <laughs> See, I would have gone, if I'd been the PMRC, I'd have gone for this one. All Hail Satan. I think that pretty much checks the box, doesn't it, for the PMRC? Apparently, they, they fear witches more than the devil. <laughs> quite dark lyrics, aren't they? Yeah. I did take a leaf out of Rich's book and, um, like he did with Dio, I totted up the number of Satans that appeared on the, <laughs> the list. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he's not the only sad man. It was, a, it was an unimpressive 13. Given that Satan appears in four tracks, yeah, no, disappointing. I think this is this is the track where where I'm starting to tire of the falsetto. Actually, well, I say starting to tire. I mean, I, I was never really into it, like I say, but for me, it was just another seven three seven going past. Yeah, no, there's a point. There's a point in the next track, Satan's Four, where it, it kind of. I don't know what happens, but it's like you cast your mind back to when you were in primary school and there was an audition for the end of end of term play and everyone had a little singing part and you knew that there were some kids who just shouldn't have a singing part, and but they'd always give it to someone and you thought, you know, that, that that's a voice that sort of splits paint. And there's a moment in Satan's Fall where I'm taken back to a horrible, horrible place. Um, yeah. The worst is yet to come. <laughs> The best quote I saw about Satan's Fall, which is this 11-minute epic, and an, an epic in Merciful Fate terms means, fuck me, where's it going, um, was when the bass, the bass player, the late Timmy Hansen, only died last year, said, it took ages to learn. <laughs> and I thought, no, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great spot, though. Again, lovely galloping riff. Um, yeah, but some seriously weird bridges and changes, and mm. gets messier, doesn't it? And um, yeah, just a just a crazy track. I can't imagine it started off as a number of different songs. They've taken what they think is the best of each, and and stitched them together Frankenstein style. This is King Diamond's love song to the witch, Melissa, and that's the name of the skull he has on his stage, isn't it? With him, yeah. The title track, I think everything that is dear to King Diamond is contained within this song. I mean, this is almost this is almost YNT. I believe in you at this point. <laughs> this is probably my second favourite song on the album because I think it's just different. I think I like it because it's different. It's not relentless and screechy. Yeah, but there are similarities to come, aren't there? Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, I don't think we get. I don't think that it's possible to listen to a Merciful Fate track and not have some of that in there. It starts well. It start. I love the start of this, and again, I think it's well structured. I mean, and Sherman wrote all, all the music he's credited with. Is that right? Mm. No, I really like Melissa. Yeah, this bit here is around three minutes, isn't it? Again, just some really, really good music, but then overlaid with "Oh, She Was a Witch." So come on then, uh, highs and lows, or lows and not quite so lows, depending on where you sit. Yeah, I found it quite difficult to separate most of them, to be honest, but um, I think Satan's Fall just tires me out. On those grounds alone, It's it would be the, the track I'd mark lowest. And I really enjoyed it. The sound of the demon bell, it just gets off to a great start and uh, doesn't really let up. 
I love side one in general. I think it's a great sign. My favourite is Curse of the Pharaohs. I'm not, I'm not sure what my low point is, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> is that a good thing? I'm going to find this incredibly hard to score. So my high is also Curse of the Pharaohs, closely followed by Into the Coven, and my low is is Satan's Fall. It's just an unholy fucking mess, with the emphasis on the unholy. Okay, there we go. Um, <clears throat> I think it's quite interesting what you say, which is difficult to score. I will find it difficult to score. Have found it difficult to score. I think it's because um, I'm not entirely sure what I'm scoring, and, and I, that sounds glib, but that's genuinely I'm not sure what I'm scoring. And I think all I can really do is score it based on how much I would listen to it compared to everything else that the other three hundred and seventy odd songs that we've listened to over the last. 13 weeks where does it sit where does each song sit in that list and that's the best i think i can do but um for the first time i've considered <laughs> and i don't think i'll do it this way but i've almost con- considered giving a score for the music and then minus points for the vocals that, that, that made me think that are for me personally there hasn't been an album we've listened to yet where I feel the two are, have crashed into each other quite so much. Really, I got to that in Calling Cards. So that's effectively how I scored Rage Against the Machine. But there we go. That is the first, uh, the sorry, the second album of the evening down, Merciful Fates, Melissa from 1983. Groundbreaking in all sorts of ways. Ridiculous in all sorts of other ways. Fantastic in all sorts of ways. Um, a real kind of melting pot of um, extraordinary sounds, one way or another. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. Steve, this is this is kind of your baby now that we've um, we've come to. Two steps uh, from the move from Hanoi Rocks, 1984, and well, you take us through it. I've got. I, I think this is this is possibly the most interesting album of the evening. But over to you. Opening album sleeve notes. I was desperately keen to bring Hanoi Rocks to the party because I think they're a they're a very important band in very many ways, a, a significance that far outweighs what they ever actually achieved. And I thought I might only get one shot at this because I thought I know you like I know you know that I mean, we, we, we discussed we've known each other for donkeys years and we've discussed bands good and bad in conversations for bands that simply don't deserve the length of conversation we've given to, but I can't ever remember us really talking about Hanoi Rocks, who are a band who I first came across, um, yeah, back at school. Um, I can't, Adrian or Adam or Guy, they all liked the, they all, these mates at school, they all liked Hanoi Rocks. There was this thing about Hanoi Rocks. I never quite kind of understood it, but I sensed why they thought they were cool and, um, and it's grown on me since. And I thought, you know what? I might only get one shot at this because this is their fifth album I'm talking about, which is Two Steps from the Move. And I've deliberately picked it because it's the one that's very well produced, <laughs> complete contrast to the other four. Um, and I thought, right, if I only get one shot at this, I'll give it one that Richard will like on production terms alone, if nothing else. But then as the WhatsApp conversations developed during the week, I thought, you know what? 
the, the, the boys are of a like mind and, and think this is all right. And uh, is that correct? Have I got, have I got the sense that you've, you, you've enjoyed your week in the company of the rocks? Thank you very much. Um, I absolutely loved it. I hadn't really um, listened to much Hanoi Rocks before. I can't believe you haven't played more of it to us, actually. Uh, I, I've had a really good week with them. Um, there, there, there's a couple, there are a couple of tracks on the album that I think they're all right, but most of the t- most of it has just been bloody good fun. Yeah. Rich, have you, uh, have you enjoyed it? Very much. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure they're a fascinating band and we'll talk more about where they've got their influences from I'm sure as we go through uh, through the album but there are loads you know, in terms of the metal straight, straight off rock 70s, 80s, punk and um, yeah I think it's a, it's a yeah, well produced, good sound good song, songwriting good fun just really good fun um, so just, as I, think I said to Mark, I'd, I'd, um, I, this week I was, I was listening to Han- Hanoi Rocks and Kiss on my bike and Merciful Fate on my rowing machine. Because um, if I'd listened to it the other way around, I'd have had a very nasty accident. <laughs> so the one thing, Steve, that, that I think I got to quite quickly was, uh, I, it was a question rather than a statement. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that, uh, Hanoi Rocks were a band out of time because I listened to it. I think if they had been around in 1978, they would have been absolutely fucking huge. Yeah, I was, I was, I was just about to. I was about to ask you boys the question: Were they out of time? Were they ahead of time? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. And what I do know is that this kind of fusion that they had was massively influenced. This kind of I mean, the, the, the nearest thing I thought of was it was kind of like T-Rex meets The Clash, but with a hell of a lot of other stuff going on in between. And you think about where they were when they started at the end of the 70s. I mean, this is their, effectively their last album for um, very, very, very sad reasons that we'll come to as we talk through the album. But so many other bands, you know, Joe Elliott, for example, from Def Leppard, he talks about, he was talking in the mid-80s about how he disliked glam rock bands. He had no time for Motley Crue and he had no time for Poison. He thought Hanoi Rocks were outstanding and were a completely different model that glam, I mean, glam rock bands tend to look as hammer rocks as the granddaddies of the genre. Guns and Roses, you know, they possibly named a track after something that, you know, was on this album. I think hammer rocks were incredibly special and it's an, it's a mystery and terrible management and awful luck that, they didn't become massive. And this was the album after four. I, I love their first four albums. I absolutely adore their first four albums. And I was tempted to put up, you know, Bangkok Shakes, their first album, or um, Back to Mystery City, just to show them at their rawest. Um, but I went for this because this was uberly beautifully produced. And this was, they're supposed to be their ticket to the big time, you know, the album that launched them to superstar status. Um, and it didn't. And, you know, as we know, it was had nothing to do with the album that it didn't. It was a very, very tragic car accident that um, ended effectively ended them as a band, although they did reform. Well, Mon- uh, Mike Monroe and um, Andy McCoy, the two chief protagonists, did reform, you know, a couple of decades later. But, you know, the spirit of Hanoi Rocks had gone. And it was a spirit. It was about a time, I think. And, um, you know, I really get it with these boys. I really do get it. Yeah, I think I, I listen to it and I hear 
all of the things that you hear. I hear T-Rex, I hear uh, The Clash, but I also hear Sham 69. There's a bit of undertones in there. There's, you know, so for shame, I always thought Hanoi Rocks were American back mm. because they've got that glam American look, I guess. I'll tell you where, where I think this band geographically is. This band is is very much in, you know, Carnaby Street, uh, you know, in London, in Wardour Street. This is this is London in the punk era. Um so I so I think to answer your question, I think they're out of time rather than ahead of time. But that but not in a bad way. I think I think they they kind of epitomise all that was really good about the about punk punk rock. Yeah, I agree with that very much. So, yeah, and the the, the London thing. I mean, they they effectively became London as anyone. I know they're a Finnish band, but came to live in London. And boy, do you hear it later on in the album. So let, let so let's put this into some sort of context. So this is August nineteen eighty four. As I say, they're they're, they're they've done their first four albums, studio albums on Lick Records, and now they've been signed to CBS and. It was originally going to be called Silver Missiles and Nightingales, apparently. But anyway, they went for this and they chucked CBS chucked money at it. And and most extraordinarily of all, they deployed the phenomenal Bob Ezrin to um, to produce it. Who'd seen them in concert the year before? So the story goes. Loved what he saw, and however the meeting came about, I've no idea. But suddenly, on the other side of the glass, having done it all pretty much themselves for four albums. And I do, I can't emphasize enough how much, if you listen to this, it, it's so different to the first four albums. And there's a track in particular on this album that will absolutely illustrate the gulf between the two. Um, but Ezrin added something incredibly special. And I think with that, they had now matured into a band, a, a real proper go, go ahead band who could have gone on and to wonderful things. And, you know, it just didn't happen. Just shame. To answer your earlier question, I, I'm, I think they were. I think they were ahead of their time. I think listening to this, right place, right time, you know, right promotion, right support. Motley Crue were just coming out, weren't they? Around um, when was their first album? It was around this time, wasn't it? Think about say, get, you know, Poison and how massive Poison became. I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm, yeah, Poison are good fun, but I, I think this is, this wipes the floor with them. This album, yeah. we, t- we talk about, yeah, their, their centre of gravity. Hannah Rocks being London, this felt to me like this is this is almost London Guns and Roses three years before LA Guns and Roses. It's, there, it's, there's a real attitude and swagger about about this album. Yeah, it's that dirt under the fingernails thing, and it? it it was Guns and Roses five six years ahead of them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm not sure I do though. Actually, I'm not sure I do agree with that. I think I think they are out of time, not ahead of their time, because because their references, their musical references, are all in the past, not in the future. Guns and Roses were were inventing um, a sound, and in a way that, and and I don't mean that in you know in a way that to denigrate Hanoi Rocks, because I think what they did was, you know, this album is amazing, but but they they are kind of tipping their hat to what was going on in 77, 78, 79, rather than uh, inventing something new. And I think you know, when you draw the comparison with Motley Crue, for example, in terms of commercial success I'm talking about, Mot- you know, Crue's music was enough to see them through. Part of it comes down to luck and the way they were marketed, obviously. I don't think their music was understood well enough 
perhaps for them to make it without all of that additional good fortune that perhaps they needed. I suppose at least, yeah. So Motley Crue had, love them or hate them, had a very unique sound. They sounded like nothing else that before. I mean, you can see the influences, but they had, they had a definite sound, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And I think comparisons between the two bands are often unfair anyway because of the point you made, Mark, because, I mean, the Crew's first album, they, they didn't press many on leather. They were quickly on Electra. I mean, and Hammer Rocks had none of that behind them. I mean, Hammer Rocks were in some, you know, bumfuck finished production company and um, label for a, for a long time. And, yeah, the, the sales of their first few albums were, you know, criminally low because they were just under-marketed um, and had, you know... As I say, had two steps from the move happened two albums earlier and what happened to the drummer didn't happen when it did, you know, we'd have been telling a very different story about this band, I'm sure. I don't think any of us, any of us disagree that this band should have made it. You know, that the music alone was enough that they should have made it. And I suppose that's the point I'm making. If they had been around six years earlier with this album... This would have been better than anything that was around at that time. You know, you put this up against the best that, maybe not the best that The Clash had to offer, but they they would have been, I think, held in the same regard as The Clash if they had been around a bit earlier. Yeah, that kind of music. Yeah, I mean, they'd have been up against the likes of Kiss and Aerosmith and Van Halen and bands like that, wouldn't they? And um... Yeah, and they would have bridged that gap at that point. They would have been the bridge between between this sort of classic punk rock yeah. that, that The Clash were doing yeah. and and the kind of the glam rock that we were going to get to eventually. They would, have been, they would have been genre setters. They would have well, been that's the whole point. I, I, I feel almost guilty trying to draw too many parallels because they are what they were. You know, they're, they're a unique product and brilliant for it. I mean, just, just such a breath of fresh air. So... The album kicks off with a cover version, which is, um, you know, unusual in itself and um, certainly unusual with this in as much as this is up around the bend, which old diehards will know as a Creedence Clearwater Revival song. And this shouldn't be compared to the original because it's got that Hanoi Rock stamp all over it. Um, and it was a very late addition to the album. And we, we, we presume, or it's kind of been said, that, that they were under pressure to come up with a single which I don't quite get because there are three or four songs down the line, which could easily have been an opening single. Um, but they went for this. It's a very, very decent cover of a very good song with the uh, the vocals of Matty Fargaholm, or Mike Monroe, as he was thankfully better known, giving it a, certainly a distinctive sound. And it's, you know, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good kickoff to the album. But for me, this is an album that gets better as it goes on. Because this is fine. This is... Like you say, perfectly decent cover of a perfectly decent song done in their own style. Absolutely nothing wrong with this at all. But what follows, I couldn't agree more, because it goes straight into High School, which is one of the most outstanding tracks they do. I mean, it's an absolute, it's just a phenomenal piece of work. Good start to High School, isn't it? Love the way it takes off. Yeah, it's a, it's a superbly cool riff. And it's about the time now we should start mentioning, you know, introducing other people to the band. Obviously, Andy McCoy was the, was the you know, the brains and the, driving writing force behind everything. Mike Munro's voice, as I've said, it's just punk. He's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, Sam Yaffa's bass playing is, oh, I think it's to die for, and it's, it's definitely front and centre, courtesy of Bob Ezrin's production. And um, Razzle's drumming, 
just 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 it's a really electrifying track i really really like it and it is very punky um but with a really cool melodic chorus just brilliant and they can count to seven as well and which is superb it it, is that real fast punk drums you know this i mean there's this could be Trey Cool on the drums. Yeah, yeah. Really, really fast, you know, Green Day type drum. In all sorts of ways, this is a punk album. Uh, I love it for it as well. Because it's yeah. different enough that it's it's not just it's not just punk. You know, it's not it's not straight down the line one thing or the other or another. It's it's different and it just it moves around and takes stuff from here and there and everywhere and just kind of reinvents it for for that point in time. But there is a lot of punk in this album, without a doubt. This is I Can't Get It, which, Richard, you were referring to earlier with Ian Hunter's lyrics. Yeah, it's it's got really very hooky. I, I found myself singing a lot of these, uh, quite a few of these songs made their way into my head. This is full of earworms. I've, I've woken up this week singing various songs off this album in my head. It's amazing the way it kind of wriggles in there and sticks. It hooks you in, doesn't it? Yeah. And credit to, to Ezrin. I mean, you think about some of the bands that Ezrin's worked with, worked like Kiss earlier. Didn't he do – no, he didn't do Kiss, did he? But, um, he did. He's done Kiss. Yeah, he did. Okay. Um, Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd and God knows who else. And they were really delighted to have him on board because he just he just turned them into pros, basically. You know, that they were, they were a punk band having fun on a shit label. And he's just turned them into pros, and that—that's—it's just so obvious. With this album, just oozes quality, which we hadn't been on the first four albums, which you love for very many different reasons. This has got such a good groove. This song, absolutely brilliant. Track four, "Underwater World," which was the second single off the album, and it's just so smooth. It's just groovy. Apparently, they wrote it in Morocco, McCoy and Monroe. They've been sent out there by the management in McCoy's place to clean up. And they came back with a tune or two, and this was one of them. Um, Yaffa's bass again, front and centre. And, of course, this is the song which has the famous Welcome to the Jungle lyric, which the myth goes, was used by another band very famously a few years later. But it's a great song. Uh, this is, I, I think this song's brilliant. It's my, my favourite track on the album. Um, the, yeah, the bass line guitar and then and then the really subtle sax at points all the way through yeah very good song now interestingly i, I for me this is is the weakest it's not That's just it. for you it's not just for you mark is it not oh it's 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 a it's a horror show it's it's a it's a massive massive misjudgment hammer rocks fans know that there is only one version of this song <laughs> and it's on the and it's on their first album and they hated it. McCoy hated it and said, we've got to redo it, we've got to rewrite it. But you rewrite it, you just you just lose the soul, you lose the point of the original, which is, you know, it was supposed to be messy and raw and this is, the original was punkier, far more upbeat. This just doesn't work for me at all. There was no, well, why cover a song you've done three years earlier? It's pointless. I don't, you've not improved it. They think they did, I don't, and most Hannah Rocks fans wouldn't say that either. It's, it's it's all right, you know. On first listen, maybe I would feel strongly about it if I'd been familiar with the original. Well, definitely, they, they did so many really good catchy punk, and, like Tragedy and Loves and Injection, and all these songs from from back in the day. And you, you, it would be almost 
you know, we've got this terrible chatting bit that Monroe does it. And, and it was arguably even worse in the original, but that made it better because it was part of what it was all about. You know, he can't, he's no poet. <laughs> I like this track. It's a bit corny. The, um, the Nigel Tufnell uh, speech bits make me laugh. And the Don't You Ever Leave Me chorus is an incredible hook. And this is one of the ones I've gone around singing all weekend. So there you go. That's, that's, that's the end of side one, which is, yeah, that's split opinions, the final track. I don't think the start of side two should split opinions, but we'll see. This is a million miles away, which is a big, big song for Hanoi Rocks fans. Um, not only because it's fantastic, which it is, um, but they also dedicate it to the late, great Nicholas Dingley, a.k.a. Razzle, thankfully. <laughs> that was a name you had to change for rock purposes, wasn't it? And um, he died in a car crash in a car driven by Vince Neil of Motley Crue um, a few months after this album came out. And um, and that was pretty much the end of Hanoi Rock. So, yeah, this is a song that's got uh, significance to the Rocks fans. And they were just about to go out on tour um, in the States, play LA for the first time. That's right. Um, Mike Monroe had fractured an ankle. Yeah. And... They've had to post. They've had to move some dates. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the sense of anticipation couldn't have been higher, and oh. um, you know, their chance to shine, and um, yeah, ended horribly, and the dream was over. So to the boulevard of broken dreams that isn't Green Days. And again, a fantastic hook uh, in terms of the chorus. So it's when I listen to stuff, you know, songs like this, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and I just wonder, how the hell did they not make it? How the hell did this not break them, this album? Un unbelievable. Yeah, I know, yeah. What I love about this song is, is, the, is the message behind it, which is about um, drugs will take you to a dead-end place, kids. But it couldn't be more chirpy or upbeat, could it? <laughs> It's just a really happy song. Oh, drugs are so bad for you, kids. <laughs> We're going to have a party while you while you get the message. <laughs> it's like something out of a high school prom. I love it. It's a bit, yeah. It's a, it's a bit like the um, the musical equivalent of the of Bill Nye's character in Love Actually, where he says, "But well, yes, don't buy drugs, kids. Get other people to do it for you." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boiler. <laughs> I can't. I can't actually think that I've ever heard. I'm enough of people being called boilers, but Mike. If you, I know, I know, I know, I know, and there's a story to come, I'm sure. But I think on the streets of London, you know, that's not going to happen. This is this is two Finnish boys coming over to London and just kind of writing their own vocabulary a little bit in it. But anyway, <laughs> it's just a pub song. It's a pop song, isn't it? Oh, they're just going into this sing-along now around the old Joanna. It's just fantastic. This is Let There Be Rock. It's it's every riff, every ACDC riff you ever heard. Uh, and uh, that's probably why I like it. And then they change it up a bit, so it becomes more punk and less less rock and roll. I yeah. really love it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's got ACDC written all over it. Held together by a very, very decent engine room. And the penultimate track, Futurama. When I want money, she can go to work as a roadie for Adamant. And if he comes on strong, you'll be in for a shot because she'll open his face and clean his cot. There you go. Future armour. 
<laughs> well, there's quite a lot of adamant in this. But yeah, yeah, good fun. Cutting corners. Love it. Absolutely love it. That's how we sign off. It's a great finish. It's a great finish. Not my favourite track on the album, but it's a great finish. Uh, and good fun. This is the one where he turns into Phil Daniels, isn't it? On on Park Life. Yeah. I'll drive it home myself. Leave it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. It's been an absolute ball listening to this. I've had a hoot listening to this. Yes, there's the, the, the mild xenophobia as well in the... Uh... In the spoken bit, isn't there? Oh, the old Frenchies. Yeah, yeah old Frenchies. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. That is two steps from the move. Mr. M. Norman Esquire, talk me through your highs and lows. So my my low um, is, don't you ever, uh, whatever it's called, don't you ever leave me, was it? Um, yeah, that was just, it was just a bit wallpapery. Um, my favourite is Cutting Corners, I think, but closely followed by those two big kind of almost Journey-esque songs, Boulevard of Broken Jeans and Million Miles Away. Rich? I mean, despite its jollity and its great fun, I'm not sure Boilers is as accomplished song as the other stuff on the album. But my, my favourite is, as I said, is, is Underwater World. I think that's, um, that's a fantastic track. As the Hanoi Man. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I guess if I'd have listened to Don't You Ever Leave Me for the first time, I'd have thought that was okay. But having known what had gone before, I just, I just, I, I, it has no value to me whatsoever and I don't like it. And I can't split high school and underwater world. I just think they're both towering pieces. Probably give it to high school. They'll both get the same mark. Yeah, no, it's been, it's just been an absolute hoot listening to, you know, their fifth album, their most commercially successful album, and the last one, very sadly, of a golden age that just didn't last long enough, I'm afraid. How would you score this album? Post your rating in the comments section of each episode guide at www.entersadmen.co.uk and we'll add it to the Listener Hall of Fame. So there we are. Three albums down, episode 13 of the Enter Sad Men podcast, reaching its conclusion. Uh, there's only one thing left to do now, and that is to score these uh, tracks and see where they end up in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so the first album we listened to on this episode was uh, Kiss's debut and uh the scores for that are as follows uh so steve scored uh, kiss with a 7.1 mark uh, not surprisingly an 8.21 given it is is one of his favorite albums and i was fairly high as well with a 7.75 um and that gives kiss an overall uh album score of a shade over 7.68 my only observation is that the overall average album score of seven point, just under shade on seven point seven, um, is slightly lower than I might have expected, but probably in the ballpark. Steve, I like this album. I like it a lot. I don't like it as much as you boys, and therefore we wind up with the score we've got. Okay, let's move on to Melissa, Merciful Fate. There's always one wild card in the pack, isn't there? Um, and this week's was um, the Danish phenomena, the phenomenon that is. Um, Merciful Fate with King Diamond. So the scores on the doors there. I scored it six point eight on the nose. Steve, you gave it six, just over six point seven. And uh, Richard, surprisingly, I was expecting it to be in the fives. 
But actually, he's not far off me. He scored it at 6.5. Our combined scores gave it an overall average of 6.67. Despite the fact that the squealing still hurts my ears, I didn't want to mark it down too much for you know j- just for that because uh, the you know the, so the the riffs the the songs the structure was was something you know really 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 good. Okay, uh, Steve, barely uh, n- less than not 0.1 of a point between your score and mine. I found it a very difficult album to find great light and shade, so I didn't. And I think I wonder if we all found the same kind of thing a little bit. Steve, take us into. Hanoi Rocks. Yeah, well, you, you you said yours was a wild card. I thought mine might be as well. I went for uh, Two Steps from the Mood by The Rocks, their um, fifth studio album. But in actual fact, it fared very well. Um, some good praise all around. So Rich rated it 7.25. You rated it 7.32. I rated it 7.45. Again, not an awful lot between any of them um, for a grand total of uh, 7.34. And... Um, I would have scored it higher, but for the one track that really disappoints me, um, which was Daniel Believe Me, which I gave a sub five score, which is utterly insulting, but um, I'm afraid they deserved it. Yeah, I, I just think it was too patchy to really get much better than that, wasn't it? There were, where it was high, it was really, really high. Where it was low, it was quite low. I think it is where it is, 7.34. Um, we ought to find out where all three of these albums uh, are in the Hall of Fame. Steve, do you want to take us through? Uh, the um, the the gilded halls and where they sit. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, we've now up to 39, 39 albums. So um, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff is uh, looking more and more difficult. And we, you know, Kiss we thought would be an outstanding album, which indeed it is, and would figure very highly in our ladder, our league table of glory. Seventeenth, um, you know, behind some decent numbers, of course. But that's you know, that's a well, that's a tough call for Kiss with 7.68667. So, yeah, they're in 17th. And then, um, obviously, you'd expect the other two to be further down. They are slightly more of an acquired taste. Um, so, The Rocks with Two Steps from the Movers in at 26. And Merciful Fate just out of the relegation zone on uh, at 36th um, with 6.67. One of five, one of six albums um, that scored sub seven in total. Um, so, yeah, that's where they all stand. And uh, as you said, Steve, that is a real mix of albums in that in that bottom six. Yeah. Judas Priest, Bixton, Merciful Fate, Ingve Malmsteen, and Tool and Caius. I mean, you don't get much more diverse than that, do you, Richard? No, no. Does it say something about our own taste? I mean, so, yeah. So Caius and Tool propping up the table. Yeah, Merciful Fate just below uh, Vixen by a, a, a real what, what, third decimal place of, 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 uh, of a score. And it is, it is sad to see uh, Judas Priest um, down as, as a sub seven, but we are, you know, we have to be consistent. And, uh, the, you know, what one, one track in particular pulled that album down and um, they paid for it. That's going to be the case throughout this, isn't it? If you, you take a misstep anywhere on an album, um, you will be punished for it, and that will be reflected in the uh, in the scores. Um, we're more or less done. I just think the only other thing that's worth just mentioning because it makes me laugh is that you can barely get a Nats bollock between Jethro Tull and Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> it's just these great juxtapositions. It follows the one you mentioned last week about um, physical graffiti and doomsday for the deceiver being impossible to separate we will have these juxtapositions going on throughout this it's just going to make us giggle isn't it yes 
but yeah, that this is the this is the truth of the whole thing, and that's what makes it that's what makes it both fascinating and huge fun to do, doesn't it? Um, that's it then. So there you go. That's it for another week. Um, we'll be back again next week. But for now, we're saying goodbye to uh, to these three albums, and um, yeah, onwards and upwards. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.